the scripture reading for today is 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made, the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time he who is in the blessed, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be the honor and the eternal dominion. Amen. This is the word of God. Father, we uh, are here this morning, and uh, Lord, I'm up here this morning, and just want to continue making much of you. God, we're here to confess or to acknowledge um, our need for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you um, came to, um, to take care of our eternal need of salvation, and Lord, I pray that as we um, stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would sustain us by your grace. Um, Lord, I am grateful for this passage today and the way that you've uh, ministered to my heart. And uh, Lord, just uh, grateful for the reminder of death, the reminder of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And that uh, even though we will all die one day, God, we will rise with Christ. And we'll be seated in the heavenlies with him. So we uh, look, we just ask God that you would have your way with us. And I pray, God, that you would just um, just soften our hearts, wherever we're coming from, wherever we're at this morning, Lord, to receive your word. And I pray that you would change us um, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. Remember me? I'm Dan. Good to meet you all. Um, and if you, are, if you are new with us or have been around for the first time the last five to six weeks, you may not have met me. I'm one of the pastors. Um, I serve alongside Chris Schuett and Pat Brady and John Keppinger, and it's a great privilege to, to be one of your pastors and a great privilege to open the word of the uh, holy, active, living, and abiding word of Christ with you all this morning. And uh, we're winding down the book of Timothy. We're in, we're in the, the Paul's first letter to Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy. And in his first letter, Timothy... Uh, to, to Timothy, Paul lays aside the, uh, the purpose of this book, and it's, it's a blueprint for the church. Um, not necessarily big C universal church, but the local church. And the church means it's the people of God. It's people that have been called into relationship with the triune God. And Paul lays forth in this, this beautiful letter of Timothy a blueprint for the local church. Not the building, but the people. And he gives us a... Um, he describes a proper ordering and a proper conduct of the local church. 
And then in the center of this great letter, he gives us kind of a, a purpose statement in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16 that I want to read to you. He says, I hope to come to you soon. You see, Timothy's in Ephesus. He's a young man in Ephesus. Paul is away. Paul is hoping to come and encourage Timothy personally, but he can't, so he's writing. He says, I come to you soon. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay in coming, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the oikos of God, not the building, but in the, but in the family of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the church. The, the church is a pillar of the truth. We're, our, our primary responsibility as pastors and leaders actually is to hold up the truth of God's word. And it's a, it's a buttress, the church is a buttress of the truth as well, is that we're to, we're to project it out, we're to, we're to proclaim it, because it's through that truth that people are saved, and people are saved, grow in the likeness of Christ. Then he goes on to say, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So earlier in, this, in, in verse 15, he says, he says um, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, and then he says this this. Behavior is called godliness, and it's found in the mystery of Christ. He describes this mystery found in Jesus. He was manifest in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, proclaimed by the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So what, what Paul is writing about is about behavior in the church that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not rooted just in morality. And he felt a need to, to write to Timothy because of false teachers that were slipping into the church, that were teaching what, what Paul described as a, as a false doctrine or a different doctrine. And you might go, well, what does that have to do with us today? I mean, the, 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 the canon of Scripture was not put together at that time. Um, there, um, people were coming to Christ left and right. We've had the Bible for, for centuries. Why is this pertinent for us today? Why should we be aware of false teachers? It, it's because of the proliferation of, of radio shows and books and TV shows. And anywhere you go, you can get a podcast. So this is, this is important for us that we, would, that we would heed Paul's words to Timothy and to be careful of teachers and preachers um, and seminar leaders that are teaching a different doctrine. And he gave us a purpose statement, a secondary purpose statement for godly living in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and it's so that all might be saved, that all would be saved, that the reason that we conduct ourselves in a way that honors and glorifies God is because there's a watching world, and they're watching us, and they're listening, and watching our, the, our, listening to our testimony by our mouth, and watching our testimony by our life to see if it's a testimony that they can believe in. And I know God is sovereign over salvation. It's, salvation is God's work, but somehow in His providence, He uses us. It's called providential concurrence. That somehow um, our actions and our words of proclaiming the gospel, that He somehow uses those to providentially save people. This year, night, night, what is this, 2017, I almost gave him my birth year, actually. Yeah, and there was a guy sitting in the front row of this last service, or second row, that, that uh, wrongly accused me of being older than I really am. Um, but this, this, is a, this year is a milestone for me, a birth date. 
actually. And it's, it's caused me to do some weird things. Um, it's caused me to um, hang out at cemeteries, actually. Yeah, at night with a shovel. No, I'm just kidding. Um, just to, um, it's, it's caused me to hang out at cemeteries. Um, I've been to the, the Windsor Cemetery twice in the last two weeks. And, um, and as I am, I am way more than two-thirds of the way dead. I mean, you can probably look at me and see that, but, but I really am just by age. I'm more than two-thirds of the way dead, and, and, we're, and, and you are dying as well. Uh, we're all dying. This isn't, a, this isn't meant to be a downer. This is meant to be a reality that somehow my prayer is will spur you on to love and good deeds. But I've been hanging out in a cemetery, and no, I have not been praying for the dead. Not been praying for the dead. They're dead. Their eternal state is determined. They're not hanging out in purgatory. They're not being baptized by the Mormons. They're dead. But what I do in the cemetery is I do a couple things. Is I read gravestones, and while I'm reading gravestones, I, it causes me to pray, not for the dead again, and do math. It's weird. So I'm walking through, and I go, you, you know, um, 1902 to 1960, 58 years old, 88 years old, 78 years old, 22, 18, 4 years old. It's just, it's caused me, actually, to worship. There's been many times, well, I've only been to the cemetery four times, but in, there's been many times in these four times where I've just sobbed, actually. I've just cried. And I've cried for several reasons. One is, is God, um, use my life. Use my life for your glory, however you see fit. I don't want to limp across the, the, the finish line. The other is, is it's reminded me that we're all dying. That we're all dying. My neighbors are dying. My grandkids are dying. We're all dying. And it has given me a sense of urgency to pray for them, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. The only message that will set the captives free from the power of death. I want to just tell you right up front as I'm talking about death here. I mean, like I had a jacket on the last service and I had a different shirt. I mean, I had like rings in my jacket. So I haven't, I haven't been up here in like seven weeks. So there's probably going to be sweat dripping all the way down my Levi's. So just, just smile like, yeah, he's a fat old man. He's closer to death than I am. Pray for me. But it's, it's just it's reminded me that we're, that we're all dying. There's, um, I've got one tattoo. And my wife has given me a budget for another three or four. If I was Steve McKenzie's age, I'd have um, sleeves up and down. Um, wouldn't go as high as the neck. But, but my, my, my next tattoo, seriously, is memento mori. Memento mori. Latin for remember death. I want it to be stamped on my body. Remember death. I want to be reminded every day that I'm dying and people around me are dying. And that the only hope in my life and in my death is the death of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope. It's a great hope. It's an amazing hope. It brings great joy. And I've, I've actually thought through, I, I have feared death a little bit, quite frankly. I've feared it. I mean, I, I've got, I'm almost ashamed to even tell you this as a pastor up here, but there's times where I don't, I'm, and I think that's why I'm going to the cemetery, is that when, when I, I'm kind of weird in this way too, when I have fears, I just face them. I had a fear of flying, and the way I conquered flying is I sat in the window seat and I watched every takeoff and every landing until I was no longer afraid of flying. And the cemetery is doing the same thing for me. It's doing the same thing for me. 
And my prayer is, is that as I go along this journey, that I can say along with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21, that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is Christ. That the reason that I'm left here and that you're left here is to live a life in submission, glorifying the triune God. To live as Christ means to, to live in a way that glorifies Jesus Christ, glorifies the triune Father, and proclaims Him with our life and with our testimony, but also to know that dying is gain. Dying is gain. If you know Jesus Christ. I also pray that I'd be able to say along with the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Today's passage, as you can imagine, has some really practical implications for all of us, no matter where you're at. Just uh, male or female, old or young, um, as all of Scripture, it's, it's for you. And my prayer is that God will meet you and encourage you and spur you on to loving good deeds as a result of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ today. Last week, in Jason's sermon, if you have not listened to it, if you've not listened to any of these past sermons, I'd encourage you to listen to it. Jason did just a phenomenal job last week. Last week, we saw Paul caution Timothy about the dangers of desiring to be rich and the dangers of the love of money. And Paul said that these type of desires will lead to temptation and other harmful de desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says it's through these cravings, these cravings of being rich and wanting more of the, give, of the, of the gift than the giver, that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I love the way that Jason um, opened this up last week, that he titled the sermon, uh, Built for the Giver or Built for Gifts. Built for the giver or built for gifts. I think for some of us, if someone were to look at our lives, look at our checkbooks, they would assume that we were built and living for the gifts rather than the giver. This week, Paul's letter to Timothy transitions from the warnings of danger to instructing Timothy how to live, how to teach, how to encourage other Christians to live. And in, in contrast to the some, in verse 10, that have wandered from the faith and are pierced themselves with many griefs, the some that he mentioned, S-O-M-E, now he says, but as for you, O man of God, but as for you, O woman of God, that if you know Jesus Christ, uh, you are God's man, you are God's woman, you are possessed by him, you are his son or you are his daughter the praise of His glorious grace. In the Old Testament, the title man of God was reserved for prophets. In the New Testament, the only place that we see the, word, the, 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 the phrase man of God used is right here, and it's Paul describing Timothy of it. This is the greatest title that could be bestowed upon Timothy. And I'm sure it must have meant a great deal to him to have the Apostle Paul call him a man of God. And even though this title is reserved for the prophets of old and is only used for Timothy in the New Testament, I believe that every person with the Spirit of God indwelling him should or her should desire to claim this title for himself or herself. You know, I haven't, I don't, I haven't really thought of epitaphs that much, even going through the cemetery. 
I got to tell you, there are very, that's another thing I look for. There are very few epitaphs that give testimony to a great God and a life lived in submission to that great God. It doesn't mean that the people didn't, but I'm just saying there's just not a lot, a lot of evidence of that. And I don't really care much about my epitaph, quite frankly. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I just, yeah, there's, I'm afraid what might go on it actually with to get the pen in some people's hands that I know. Um, when we were, when my, when my, before my first grandchild was born and they were, everybody's like jockeying for names, both grandparents, like, do you want to be grandma and grandpa or what other hip name? And my, my wife grabbed a hold of Grammy. And I said, I don't really care. So my kids said, well, why don't she be Grammy and you be crappy? And I go, well, come on. <laughs> it's like, I'll, so I'm Papa. The, the crappy part didn't start. So my, I, you know, yeah, I'm still in counseling on that one. No, just kidding. We are, as Pilgrim's Progress puts it, we're the king's champions. That's who we are as men and women of God, is we are champions of the God most high, of, the, of his glorious gospel. What a, what a marvelous thought that is. Men or women of God who have been lifted above worldly aims and who have been devoted to divine service. Men and women who who belong to a spiritual order with which things temporal, transitory, and passing have no grip on us. We are men and women who are not the world's men and women. We are not our own. We are God's people. We are unique possessions of God. We are His property, and we stand in His stead here on earth in this time to proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. A couple of reminders. A man or a woman of God is not perfect. A man or woman of God is one redeemed and forgiven by faith alone in Christ alone through grace alone. A man of God is one who, or a woman of God, is one who perseveres in desiring and living for the giver, not simply for the gifts. And we see in the passage today that Paul describes the man of God. He says, this is how a man of God, a man or woman of God conducts him or herself. There's three key words that we're going to be looking at this morning. Flee, follow, and fight. Flee, follow, and fight. And Paul starts off, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee means to literally run from danger. Flee from what he just warned Timothy about in verses 9 through 10. Flee from the love of money and all that goes with it. He's to flee from the illusion that godliness is a means of gain. The prosperity gospel would say that, the, that godliness, doing the right thing, is a means of gain. That somehow if we just live a, 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 a certain life in submission to God, that we're going to be blessed. There's no correlation. Does God bless? Yes. Does he give good gifts? Yes. But there is, there is no direct correlation between us doing good things and being blessed. So, so we need to flee from the illusion that godliness is a means of gain. We need to flee from the desire to be rich. Ultimately, we need to flee from desiring gifts more than desiring the giver. Paul's urging here is to flee the desire of anything that replaces Christ as the center of our desires and affections. Why? Just go back to verse 10. 
when we desire the gifts more than we desire the giver of the gifts, it will snowball and it will lead to other harmful and senseless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It will also cause some to wander away from the faith. So Paul tells Timothy to flee these things. It will only create difficulty in your life. And I, I want to just be clear what I'm saying here, that God gives good gifts. That God gives good gifts. And he gives good gifts to all of humanity. Chris talked about it up here earlier. It's called common grace. Your family is a good gift. Your health is a good gift. Your life is a good gift. Your kids are a good gift. Your home, vacations are a great gift. A retirement account is a great gift. But what Paul's warning against here is an all-out pursuit of finding identity and ultimate satisfaction in the gifts rather than in the giver. Are you with me on that? Yeah. The gifts aren't bad. They're good. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told to flee other things, not so good things, actually, bad things, sexual immorality, idolatry, youthful passions. When Paul says, speaking of idolatry and, and other things that we should flee, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13, Paul says this, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What Paul is saying there is that, that wherever you're at in your journey, you can fall. And there's always something nipping at your heel. It's, it's, it's temptation. It's the enemy. It's uh, good things that are replacing the best thing, God. He says, take, anyone who, who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you, but that is common to man. In other words, we're, we're, Temptation for all of us is the same. It's in different degrees, but we're all tempted. Then it goes on to say, but God. My next text is, but God, dot, dot, dot. But God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, flee, that you may be able to endure it. If you think you can stand where you're at in the midst of temptation... And he gives you a way out, you're going to fall. So flee temptation. There are times in our Christian life when our only defense we have is to strap on our running shoes and take off. We lived in Denver for 10 years before we, before we moved up here. And it was in the first probably 12 years of our marriage. We lived up north for two years, and so it was years 2 through 12. And uh, we, were, we were on a bad trajectory. I professed faith in Christ. Nancy... Um, thought she was a Christian. She later came to put her faith and trust in Jesus. But our life was, was going down a, a bad road really quickly. Um, there were all kinds of temptations in our life. There was all kinds of, of um, yeah, there's lots of things that weren't going well. And the Lord, in His kindness, started pursuing me again. He started, a, he started attacking me like the hound of heaven from all directions in a loving way. I got invite, invited to a Bible study. I got invited to Foothills Bible Church in Denver. I got invited to a conference called Dad to Family Shepherd. I got invited to another Bible study with some friends. I mean, all this was happening. And as God started to show me um, that I was giving in to temptation, the only option I had was to flee. And so we, like the Beverly Hillbillies, we packed them up, packed it up. 
and we moved 60 miles north to Fort Collins. Had nothing to do with my job. My job was in Denver. But my salvation, my life, and, my, and, the, and the life of my family was more important than actually providing for them. By God's grace, I continued to provide for them well. But I had to be, I had to, I had to go to safety. I had to flee. But we need to be careful here. What Paul isn't saying, just flee, because fleeing alone can lead to legalism. There are all kinds of cults out there that profess morality, that, that, that are living in communes, um, um, eating a certain food and dressing a certain way and doing certain things, but they, they are not regenerate. They do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just because someone's a minimalist and they live in a tent doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're the Lord's. They could be. So in addition, after flee, Timothy, encourages, Timothy is encouraged by Paul to pursue six qualities or six virtues. This is the second F after, after flee. It's follow or pursue. And the first one is the most important one is pursue righteousness. And some of the commentators that I read said this is to pursue righteous living. I don't believe that's the case. And there's some other commentaries that actually, um, uh, that actually confirm that. It's not wholly wrong, actually, because men or women of God are to be righteous in our behavior. But I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul is referring to righteousness, not as behavior, but as belief. What Paul is talking about here is that we need to pursue a belief in the reality of the great exchange. That, that Jesus, who knew no sin, became our sin so that what? we might become the righteousness of Christ. That's a game changer. When we pursue the belief that we are truly righteous, that we can stand before a holy God because of Christ's righteousness in us, that the Father sees us in the same way He sees His Son, Jesus, spotless, sinless, innocent, Beloved sons and daughters, that's you, O man of God. That's you, O woman of God, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus, that you are righteous before a holy God. This belief, this pursuit is the basis of stability and of proper functioning in the life of a believer. And that's why Paul puts it forth first here. Remember, O man or woman of God, follow after and pursue the reality that you are righteous in Jesus Christ. Next, Timothy is encouraged to pursue godliness. As we already talked about, godliness is a behavior that is rooted in and produced from who we are. Righteous. Sons and daughters. We should pursue a life of godliness behavior, godliness, or it's a behavior that lines up with who we are, really. Next, pursue or follow after faith. Just don't go through the motions. Strengthen your faith. Pursue your faith. The more we know the character of God, the more we know the love of Christ, the stronger our faith will be. That's why Paul prays in the first chapter of Ephesians, he prays what? He can pray anything, but he prays that, that you would know the height and depth and breadth and width of God's love for you. 
That's a faith strengthener. The more we know of the character of God, the more we, the more we know of the love of God. It strengthens my faith. And the way we do this, we, we pursue it by spending regular time in the Word and in prayer. And by doing this, it will give us the resolve we need to pursue loving others. It'll give us the resolve we need to go down the path of love, to sacrifice for others without experiencing anything in return because of Christ's love for you. We, we love others, why? Because He loved us first. Last on the list is steadfastness and gentleness. Steadfastness is a won't-quit determination in the face of difficult circumstances. It's endurance rooted in faith that refuses to give up. It's a dogged desire to persevere in the faith no matter what the circumstances are. You know, there's people in this body that have hard, hard circumstances. And there's times in our hard circumstances that we can't persevere. And we need brothers and sisters in Christ to lift our arms when we can't lift our arms. To feed us when we can't eat. To encourage us. To remind us of a good and loving God. This unwillingness to quit, this steadfastness, is a mark of a Christian man or woman in the midst of a world that has gone wrong. This is a steadfastness that, that gives you an undying desire to want to know the height and depth and breadth and width of God's love for us. While steadfastness speaks to circumstances, difficult circumstances, the pursuit of gentleness is patience with difficult people. Anybody have any difficult people in their life? It's the quality of tender, patient self-control in dealing with people that push all your buttons. And that describes some of our marriages. But pursue these things. Flee from evil. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and godliness. Make a mental list of these qualities. There's only six of them. Ask yourself every day, is this happening in my life? Are these virtues or these fruit, this, this fruit, if you will, is it growing in my life? It's something every one of us ought to do every day is to take a quick mental checkup and ask ourselves, how am I doing? Am I honoring and glorifying God? What's happening in my life? So Paul tells Timothy to flee from evil and to pursue Christ and his virtues. Next, he says, fight the good fight of faith, verse 12. Yes, we're marching along. we got one verse under our belt. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here the language for, for fight the good fight suggests voluntary athletic agony. The word fight is, is derived from the same word, Greek word for, for agonize. So it's, it's agony. It's the, kind of, it's the kind of agony that takes place in a grueling race or a boxing match. If you've run competitively or if you've boxed or if you've competed at any level, you know of some what I'm talking about. 
If you're a runner, you keep running until your lungs burn and, you feel, and your feet feel like lead. And then you reach down and agonizingly you increase your speed as you approach the finish line. My daughter ran cross country in college for Windsor, or in high school for Windsor High School. That's got to be the most brutal sport on the planet. With those kids in the, in the heat, with people screaming at them, they're you know, telling them to go faster at the end of the race. Those who have put on the gloves also know what it's like to give and receive blows until it takes all you have to even keep your hands up. Paul did this himself. He fought and he agonized so that he could say near the end of his second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge. He will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved the appearing. talked to my wife about this this morning, and I was, I was describing older Christians. And as I've seen older Christians uh, around, not in this church, praise be to God, but I've seen old, older Christians, it's, it's easy for them to get tired and let their guard down or even, even take off the gloves. In the final, final round, to take off their gloves and actually get out of the ring. Or take off their running shoes, if you will, and put on flip-flops because they've done their time. They've fought the fight. Now they're just going to cruise into eternity. But Nancy cautioned me, it's not just older Christians. It's saints that have been Christians for a long time. We've become over-familiar with the faith. We've become over-familiar with God's grace and His mercy. And what Paul is saying, may that not be so. Fight the good fight. Not just today, but until Jesus returns. And just a reminder, our fight's not against other people. It's not even necessarily against the culture. It's a fight against Satan. It's a fight against our own flesh. And the fight primarily is up here. It's a fight to believe the truth of who God is and who we are in Christ. It's a fight to fend off the lies and the deception of the enemy. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul describes this. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, in, in, this, in this body, he's not talking about sin, he's talking about being here on this earth in this flesh suit. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Reading a book that Pat Brady gave us, Nancy and I read, it's called Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Great, great book. Um, if you um, are looking for something to read to supplement uh, your Bible reading, I'd encourage you to read this. We all have these days. Don't you just wake up sometime and just kick the dog? Like, you don't do oh, the cat. Drown the goldfish. I don't know what you do. But you wake up in a bad mood, the wrong side of bed. You're like, what is going on with that? And it's, 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 it's spiritual depression, actually. And the only way around that is to start, is to start um, washing your mind with the truth of Scripture. 
in believing what God says who he is, in believing what God says who you are, in believing what God says who the enemy is. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And he's defeated. He's defeated. He's still pesky. He still roams around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. But if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are Teflon, man and woman. There's nothing he can throw at you that will stick. As long as you're believing the truth of who God is and who you are in Christ. It seems as though the next few verses, Paul is telling us how to fight. Paul says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy already had eternal life. And and it was confirmed at his conversion and his baptism when he made the good confession. So Paul here is given further instructions on how to fight, take hold of eternal life. Eternal life is both the now and it's the age to come. And Timothy, like all of us, has eternal life both as a present possession and a future hope. And we need to be reminded of that hope. And that's why I want to stamp, remember death on my body. Memento mori. Sounds radical, I know. I'm going to be 60. This is not for any of you young people. You can do this when you're 60. He gives him a charge. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Here's the charge. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Paul is urging Timothy to live in accordance to the imperatives of Scripture. That's the command. Live in a way that brings God glory by living in obedience to everything that is written here. You see, the the gospel is not against working. It's against earning. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you did. In fact, you were dead in your sins and trespasses when God in His mercy made you alive in Christ Jesus. But now on this side of salvation, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in community with other believers, standing on God's Word. You might ask, well, how, how, how long do I have to live this way? I mean, it's kind of getting tiring, actually. I'm getting tired of the fight. He's urging Timothy to live this way until Jesus appears, or if you will, returns to judge the living and the dead and sets all things right. When will he return, Paul says here, at the proper time? Only God knows. And God's timing is perfect, and this should be an encouragement to our hearts, that Jesus is coming back. He's going to judge the living and the dead, and he's going to set all things right. No more death. No more teenagers, babies buried in the cemetery. further urges Timothy, charges him in the presence of the Father and the Son, verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God. 
Paul meant to encourage Timothy and you and I, not intimidate us. Some would say that you need to behave in a certain way because God is watching. You're in his presence. I don't know about you, but that does not motivate me at all. What motivates me that I'm his, his, I'm his precious possession. That because of everything, because of who he is and what he's done, my life is no longer my own. And what Paul is saying here is I charge you in the presence of God is that God is present with you. He is, he is an ever-present help in time of trouble. He is always with us. He preserves and maintains our life. And he will sustain Timothy and you and I for all of our allotted days. And Timothy was likewise, in verse 13, not, not only to be uh, strengthened by Christ's presence, but also by Christ's example. It says, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. You see, Jesus already did what Timothy would be asked to do and what you and I are asked to do. Before Pilate, Pilate says uh, to Jesus in chapter John 18, verses 36 through 37, are you the king of Jews? And Jesus knows that, that his life depends on this answer. That if he answers it truthfully, he's going to the cross. So, of course, he answers it truthfully. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we too can make the good confession. And we make the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord by our life and by our words. And we make this good confession the same way that Jesus did, knowing that persecution, mocking, loss of family, loss of friends might come. But we can take heart for Jesus is coming again. In the meantime, we are secure in Him, and His presence is our strength. Let me go to the last two verses. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Remember, brothers and sisters, that God is king over all the kings of the earth. We fear no rulers, evil or otherwise. He is King of kings. He's Lord of lords. All the great lords of earthly power are subject to his control. Proverbs says, Proverbs 21 says, the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand, and he turns it whatever direction he wishes. Knowing this, we can find peace and a sense of security in our troubled day. And then we see that, that God, that he alone is immortal. God is unique in his majesty because he's immortal. Paul says this, this means deathlessness. He alone is able to, to conquer the great enemy, death. Immor immortality belongs to the gospel, and only those who believe in the gospel can survive the emptiness and the corruption of death. 
Scripture everywhere tells us that. What the cemetery has done for me is it's fueled a passion in my heart to be willing to lose friends and family. With a bold proclamation of the gospel, I've been spurred on in recent weeks by the other pastors, actually, in this. If I can just get them with a shovel to come to the cemetery with me. We won't do that. That's just sick. Paul goes on further to say that that God dwells in unapproachable light. What majesty that pictures. The sun is the greatest manifestation of light we know today. There is no one remotely like God. He is not a tired old grandfather up in glory that, that is twiddling his thumbs just saying, oh gosh, what's happening down there? No, God dwells in unimaginable light. He dwells in power and majesty beyond our capacity to describe. No one can draw no, near to the light apart from the provision He has made through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And finally, God is invisible. The invisible spirit whom no man has ever seen or can see. But the most incredible mystery of Christianity was the night when in that dirty stable, in that cave in Bethlehem, a baby was born. Whom the angels sang, saying, this day in the city of David is born unto you a Savior, which is Christ, the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us. The great news of the gospel is that the invisible God has become visible to man. We cannot see God, but we can see Jesus. This is This is at last where God is put on our level. He came down so that we might know the triune God. And having mentioned these glorious attributes, he concludes, Paul concludes in verse 16, to him be the honor and power forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. Father, truly, all power and glory and honor are yours. They're not ours. They're not this church's. It doesn't belong to the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. But all power and glory and honor are yours. And God, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that we've been reminded that, that because of, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can flee evil when it comes. And I thank you for the instruction to pursue these six virtues, to follow after godliness and righteousness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. I thank you for the reminder that we we already know, but the stark reminder that we're to fight the good fight of faith. And we do that most clearly by grabbing a hold of eternal life by remembering who you are, your great character, by remembering the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we are forever and securely yours. So God, thank you. We praise you and we thank you for uh, just loving us and calling us into your kingdom. And I pray, God, that um, in your kindness you would use us for your glory. And God's people said,